Turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. Today we have come to verses 10 uh, through 16, almost the end of the chapter. Actually, verse 17 goes better with chapter 3. You're aware that the, the verse and chapter references are something that we've added just to help us find these passages, and they're not always the best divisions, and this is one such case as we go to verse 16, Malachi 2, 10 through 16. Now, to bring us back up to speed, this is the last book of the Old Testament, as you uh, recall. Uh, Israel has come back to Palestine after about 70 years of deportation and exile, captivity, however you want to term it, uh, under the rule first of the Babylonians and then the Persians. Now they were able to go back to their land, and under the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the Old Testament church experienced really a second exodus, maybe not as miraculous as the first one with the parting of the sea, but when you look at the political dynamics that were there present with Israel, first being hostily taken over by Babylon, now for the Persians to issue a decree for them to go back is truly a work of God in delivering them back to their land after these years of exile. When they return, many positive things were happening. Uh, they're typified by the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the temple, even more importantly, more spiritually anyways, was the temples uh, being rebuilt. So many positive things were happening. There was a spiritual revival. We could see it in the book of Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, yes, sin is still there, just like it's in the church today, but God confronts it with his word, and the people receive it, and they repent, and they are renewed spiritually. And this, this was happening uh, when they first got back to the land. But by the time of Malachi's oracle, the last book, of the Old Testament. They had slipped again. They were in spiritual uh, depression, you might say, a lukewarm faith. Uh, their love for God had grown cold. And so Malachi is writing to warn them of these things. He speaks of practices that they were engaging in, sinful practices. But let us not forget that the basis was their forgetting God's love for them, forgetting God's amazing grace. And that led them to these sins that Malachi speaks of. And I mention that because uh, for several weeks in a row, we're going to address specific sin issues that the church in Malachi's day was dealing with. But uh, don't forget that the basis for these sins uh, is connected to they're ignoring God's grace for them. Hear now God's word, verses 10 through 16 of Malachi 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God-seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the, Lord who, who for the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Lord, we have before us a text that resonates as it relates to the relationships we have with each other and also the relationships we have between husbands and wives. And we see what was happening in Malachi's day. And Lord, we acknowledge these things still happen today. We're still sinners. And Lord, we're still in need of your grace. Give us the ability, uh, the spirit to repent. Lord, we know only you can provide this for us and bring glory to yourself as we come into a new appreciation for the relationships we have and how they relate to our relationship with you. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we consider these verses, we have to, once again, remember the context in which they fall. Uh, the church, or otherwise known as Israel here, was in a state of lukewarm faith at best. They're suffering uh, many different uh, ailments in their spiritual life. You know we've gone through them already. But the lack of vitality in their walk with the Lord is, is really... The root of it, anyways, is found in verse 2 at the beginning of the book in chapter 1 where the Lord says, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? And he goes to this litany of how he has loved them. See, they have forgotten that he had loved them. And so if you go on the basis that God does not love me or he has not been gracious to me, that will then affect everything, your, your perspective in life, how you relate with God, how you relate with each other. It will be on a basis of works in your mind or merit rather than God's sure love for us and see they had forgotten this uh really malachi is not a litany of sins without counsel uh no in fact they start malachi starts with this basis that they had forgotten that is crucial for all of us to remember i have loved you the lord says but they said have you loved us we don't believe you they doubted god's love for them and you remember what god's love is like it's not that fleeting emotion that fleeting commitment we call love today it's his sure love that is his sovereign love his unconditional love, his redemptive love, his elective love, his sure love, which is much different than the love we have for each other as sinful human beings. What did this result in? We already have looked at empty worship. They were bringing lame offerings. Remember back to our first few weeks in this book. Unfaithful leadership is where we were last studying, where the leadership had received these lame offerings and had become uh, poor teachers, if not outright false teachers, leading the people of God into sin. And today we have another result of them forgetting God's sure love, faithlessness in relationships. They're faithless to one another. So you see, at their base, relationship problems are really spiritual problems. Your relationship with the Lord will shape your relationship with others. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you see the connection between the sins of our forefathers in this passage, in this time? Do you see the relationship between their problems and their sins, do you see how they are related? Their relationships and their spiritual lives? For you, do you see the connection between your relationship with others and your relationship with the Lord? Do you see how they're connected? Do you see the connection between your relationship with your spouse and your relationship with the Lord? Have you thought of it in that way? Because I would submit to you, and the scripture will show forth in this book and all throughout the scriptures, we'll just look at Malachi this morning, that relationship problems are spiritual problems. Now, it doesn't mean that you're totally at fault in this situation. It's just saying that there's a spiritual basis for how we relate to one another. And there is always a spiritual answer for what those problems that you are experiencing are. Let's consider it this morning. First, look at verse 10. 
Just one verse addresses this major, major issue. Here we have uh, the quality of your relationships with other people as a spiritual matter. Look at verse 10, and let's surmise for a moment what is happening in Malachi's day. We see from this verse that people were being faithless to one another. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Now remember, we're speaking to the church or Israel in this day, which is some dynamics that are different than ours, and that is, and that is their theocratic nation as such, but they're essentially the church, God's community, God's covenant community, much like us today. And the first appeal from the prophet, before he gets into the relation, relational woes, is don't we all have one father? Uh, in other words, he starts with God as our father. That is, we're united under his fatherhood. This is important. It's sort of like if my sons were at odds with one another and they could appeal to the fact, hey, we've got the same dad. What are we doing? And that is not true of everyone. Not everyone could say that I am their father. Not everyone could say that God is their father. God is everyone's creator, but he is not necessarily their father. By covenant, he makes himself the father of his people. And so the first point of appeal is, is not God our father? We're united under God's fatherhood. We're a family then. So he starts there. He's not just our king or our potentate only. We're under his fatherhood. They are unique as God's people. But also, has not one God created us in verse 10? So there's an appeal to God as a creator. First, the fatherhood, interesting order if you think about it. Creator, second. So he is authoritative in, in that he is the designer. He has the right to speak to us authoritatively as our father and as our maker. And really, there's an appeal here to what we call as natural revelation. That is, God is the creator. Uh, and even though you don't have to read the Bible, you don't have to read the Bible to know that. You just look at the trees and you know God is the creator. That's what we call natural revelation. God reveals his handiwork just by the heavens. Now, that isn't enough information for any of us to be saved, but it's enough information for us to know there's a God. And so that is what he's referring to as God as creator. But also there's a supernatural or a special revelation that comes in the word of God, which is that he is our father by Jesus Christ. Uh, uniting us together with Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. This is revealed to us by the word of God. We could not know this just looking at a tree or looking at the heavens. So here there's an appeal to both, both natural revelation and special revelation. So what is the problem? Here in verse 10 it says they're being faithless to one another. Now understand the word faithless, and different versions use different words. This is an excellent choice of words. It means treacherous or being treacherous to one another, deceitful. The way I would like to put it is this. It's being self-preserving towards one another. And what I mean by this is, is we have a tendency to want to preserve ourselves. And uh, even the most noble among us, still at the core of our being, as depraved people, uh, even in the process of sanctification, will default to saving our skin if we have to, as it relates to someone else. And uh, selfishness, self-serving, self-preserving. And this was the rule of the day. In fact, this is... Uh, not one specific sin that you could call faithlessness, but rather multiple sins that come from this mode that you're always looking out for number one, that you're self-preserving, and you're using people for your own gain or to make yourself look better somehow. That is what was happening in their relationships with one another. The relationships were really just fake. They are exploitative. They are mutually exploiting one another to promote themselves. And good thing none of us do that, right? It's a wonder that we've been freed from this, huh? Fortunately, we know that's not true. We tend to, as I said, go into this default mechanism of self-preservation. Look at 
the second part of verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another? If God is our Father, if he's our creator, if we're united as a family, why do we deal treacherously with each other? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now, this is the point. Spiritual problems show themselves in our relationships. Relationship problems are spiritual problems. They were profaning the covenant of their fathers. And the covenant of their fathers is a covenant of grace. It's the same covenant we're united under today. It's not changed. For all the differences between the Old and New Testament, this one isn't. One covenant of grace covers it all. They were united under the covenant of grace. That is, none of their own goodness merited God's favor. They all had this in common. They were depraved. They were sinners. They were dead in their sins, and they'd been raised to life. They have that in common with each other, just like you and I have that in common. None of us was so cleaned up and good-looking to the Lord that he chose us. Rather, he chose, according to the good pleasure of his own will, to set his affection on us. And we're united as people who are saved sinners. And they profaned that covenant of grace by their lack of forgiveness, their treachery toward others, their deceitfulness toward others, for their self-preserving ways with each other. Their relationship problems were, in fact, at root, spiritual, a spiritual problem. Let me just give you this application, if you think about it specifically. When we say, and I think all of us have said it one time, I know I have, I don't get along with so-and-so because we have different personalities. Find me one verse in all the scripture that excuses us for not getting along with someone because of a personality conflict. It's not in the Bible. There is no such excuse. It's true, we have different personalities, but that never allows us to say, I don't get along with someone because we have different personalities. So there's a personality conflict. No, there's a sin problem. It may be that I am not putting that person first and I'm chalking it off as a personality problem. In other words, they're not doing what I want we have different personalities. Rather than, as the Lord Jesus says, to lay our lives down for others, to consider others more important than us, something foreign to my humanity, foreign to my self-preserving core. Maybe that's really what's happening, and it's not a personality conflict at all. In fact, you know what I have noticed? Those who I have trouble getting along with at first, it's usually because they're very much like me. Sins and all. And strengths and all. And when I repent concerning my attitude towards them, the amazing things God can do with that kind of teamwork between people of similar gifting, personalities, behaviors. I mention this because much of what is treacherous between us is just chalked off as personality conflict, or we don't, you know, just avoid that person. That is not an option for us in the scriptures. It really amounts to self-preserving, doesn't it? Are we striving to put others before ourselves, as the Lord has displayed for us? Are we washing the feet of others? We're not to excuse sin. If sin occurs, we have to address it biblically. But we shouldn't make issues that aren't sin come between us. Well, I don't like the way so-and-so did this. Well, is it a sin? Does it offend God? Because if it doesn't offend God, it ought not offend us. Why do I not get along with so-and-so? Why? That is the question. And only I can answer that. And only you can answer that. Is it a matter of sin that needs to be addressed? Or is it a matter of self-preservation, self-promotion, selfishness, not putting others first? Certainly this was a problem in Malachi's day. We have not escaped it yet. So we hear these words when we listen to the prophet. God is your father. He's your creator. 
Why then are we faithless, treacherous towards one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Our relationship problems are at the base a spiritual problem. When we don't understand what God has forgiven us of, then we won't forgive others. Our lack of forgiveness towards others is almost always related to our lack of understanding regarding how much God has forgiven us, his covenant. Relationship problems are indeed a spiritual problem. Malachi then goes to an even more troubling situation, which he calls an abomination. And it has to do with the marriages of Malachi's day. Look at verse 11, because here we will see that the quality of our marriages is it's really a spiritual matter. Look at verse 11 down to verse 14 to try to understand what was going on in Malachi's day. Judah has been faithless. So he's saying that the nation, Judah, the southern kingdom, which is now Israel, Judah has been faithless, and, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. So you understand already what's happening. They've come to this new land again that's new to them anyways after this long exile, and they're selling out both... uh, figuratively in that they're turning to other gods uh, in the sense of uh, being unfaithful to their Lord, but also interpersonally something's happening here. A relationship problem between husbands and wives is developing. And then they're still going to worship, bringing sacrifices, we understand, as if nothing's wrong, as if it's okay what they've done. And let's discover further what's going on. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? That is, why doesn't he bless us? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He sees what's happening in the marriages, which is his institution, that is marriage. And he sees what's happening in that not only are they being faithless in the relationship, and the men of this community apparently are putting off their wives in favor of other women, which we'll get to in a moment, and yet they're still going about their business as though it's okay. Uh, They're going about worship even. And they don't understand why God is disciplining them, why he's bringing hardship to them. And he tells them, because of the situation, because of your marriages, because of the relationships between husbands and wives, that is why these things are coming upon you. The text says they're coming to the Lord's sanctuary, and later in verse 16, clothed in violence, meaning they were living in sin. What did they do? Really what it looks like here, and commentators more or less agree with this, that they were away from the land, they returned to the land. These men, apparently, who are being addressed specifically, are leaving the wives of their youth. So we get the impression that they're middle-aged or they're older husbands and wives, and they're leaving the wife of their youth. That term, wife of youth, is usually referred to by middle-aged people or older, referring to the woman that they married when they were young. It's not typically spoken of when they're still in their youth. So we understand that they are people who have gone back to Palestine, probably middle-aged. They're forsaking those wives in favor of daughters of foreign gods. The term daughters of any person in antiquity usually refers to people who are not yet married. Young women is most likely what's referred to. So these middle-aged men and their wives and families are coming back to Palestine, and these men are, are divorcing their wives in favor of marrying these young women who are pagans. 
Now, the issue here, by the way, is not about uh, race. It's not a racial issue. It's a faith issue. It's about the fact that these uh, women are worshipers of false gods, and we're to never marry or have a union of that nature with someone who is not a believer. So that's part of the problem. Of course, the original problem is, is that they're forsaking their true wives, the ones that God has ordained for them in the faith. So the problem is complex, but it's not unlike much of what happens today. We can certainly relate with the breakdown of marriage, the lack of seriousness people take with regard to that covenant. Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7 warn against marriages outside the faith, but long before that, in the commandments themselves, that we are not to commit adultery. And that's what in essence was happening, is they were divorcing their wives to marry illegitimate wives. And as a side note, before we move further, don't marry an unbeliever. If you're not married yet, do not marry an unbeliever. Relationship problems are spiritual problems. You will have relationship problems unless you are not a sinner, and I'm confident you all are, and so am I. So when those problems come, if they're really spiritual problems and the person to whom you are married has no spiritual life, how will those problems ever be addressed? It's hard enough being of like faith, of trusting in the Lord Jesus together, let alone being in a relationship where someone does not acknowledge Christ and there's no common basis to address the problems by way of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God penned by God. That is just a side note to what is happening here, and that was the problem with them divorcing their legitimate wives and going for illegitimate wives. But there's a specific charge to husbands that is both explicit and implicit in this text. First of all, explicitly, it, it's called sin. There's no question about it. He's disciplining them because they have forsaken the wife of their youth by covenant. The spiritual union's been broken for them to go chase after some other woman. That's an explicit uh, commentary on the sinfulness of this. They were faithless to the wives God had given them, no question. But there's something implicit here. If you look at verse 11, verse 11 refers to Judah, Israel, to, to uh, the, the, the community of people. Yet it's the sin of these men who are leaving their wives. Do you notice this? The sin of these men has been reflected now on the whole community. There's a gravity that goes with being men in a community, with being fathers, with being leaders. When they sin, it has a holistic effect on the whole community. He addresses Judah. It's the men who are doing this, but Judah is being punished for it because of the men's choice to forsake God's covenant with them, with their covenant with their wives, and to go after foreign wives, foreign wives who trust in other gods. There's a multiplying of the sin that happens when the fathers, when the men of a community go after sin. Look at verses 15 through 16, and you see this explicit and implicit charge. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. See, brothers and sisters, what we have here is that there's a commitment made in marriage that is between God and those individuals first. In other words, my first commitment actually isn't to my wife. It's to God and the covenant that has been made before him. So my first bit of faithfulness to my wife has to be my faithfulness to God. He is the one who I have a relationship with first. In fact, you remember the case of Joseph when the wife of Potiphar tried to seduce him. You remember what he said. 
I cannot do this evil thing and sin against God. He understood that the first aspect of his fidelity was to God. And so this is the first aspect of understanding the issue related to marriage and our faithfulness to one another. And there's some confusion about verse 16. I'm sure you probably have versions that say, God hates divorce. Problem is that is not what it says in the original language. In fact, this version, the ESV that I use, does the best job, and even it's not great, at trying to capture a very difficult Hebrew uh, wording. Uh, The way it is listed here, and it fits with the context better, as you see, for the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. In other words, the man who hates, and the word hate here is similar to the way Jesus refers to it. He says you must hate your mother or your father. It means disowns. It means to put off your devotion to. He who puts off your devotion to your wife and divorces her puts on a, a garment of violence. In other words, if for unbiblical reason you go about such a thing as divorce, and it is an unbiblical reason to leave someone for another, you will cover your garment with violence. That means when they see you coming, they'll know by your jacket, figuratively, that you're someone who has brought violence. And you would have, because there's nothing more violent, save probably death, and in some cases, not even death, that is worse than this kind of divorce. I've never seen a good thing come, I've never seen a good thing come out of divorce, period, let alone this kind. What it does to the, the victim, the spouse, what it does to the children, to the community, to the society, his words cannot describe what happens. Yes, God's grace is great, but still this cloaks this person with a garment of violence because of their willful choice to sin in this way. This is specific to husbands. It's not addressing wives particularly. Of course we could talk in the same terms, and they're comparable for sure. But by the very design of God to place men in the position of leadership that he has, it is all the more impacting when this happens and is led by the men of the community. This kind of divorce involves faithlessness, adultery, abandonment. It's the worst. You can't even get, it's hard to imagine how it could be much worse, especially in these days when there was nothing else a woman could do once their husband left. There was no life, there was no, there were no lawyers, there was no way to make some kind of settlement to help them live, there was no way for them to go get a job and sustain themselves. It was abandonment at the wor- of the worst kind. And that's what we have happening. This leads us to ask the question, what is God's design then for marriages? We have first, it's a spiritual union. There are three references. Look at verse 14 and 15. You have a spiritual union referred to here very explicitly in three different ways. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. That is, he witnessed the covenant vows taken between you and your wife. So that's the first spiritual aspect. It involves God. So relationship problems, as they relate to our marriages, are spiritual problems. Uh, God is involved, and God has been there from the beginning and has witnessed this relationship, and it's a divine institution. It's not like other contracts that we make. It's more than a contract. It's a spiritual union, a covenant. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife, by covenant. So again, a spiritual reference here, seeing that it's a spiritual union. But look at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So God, in a sense, invests himself in that relationship. There's no way to avoid that your marriage is spiritual. It is by its design spiritual. It's the uniting of two people 
with a spiritual, supernatural union. It's not like a business arrangement. It's not just contractual. You've united spirits together in a way that is unique, and it's designed for man and for wife. It's unlike any other relationship, and it's, at its heart, spiritual. So any problem you have in your marriage, any relationship struggle you're having, has its root answer in the spiritual dimension of your marriage. I'm not trying to simplify it by just saying, well, someone sinned and therefore that. Of course. But there's dynamics that go on over years that build up on each other. They're complex. But understand, if you don't understand first, it goes to the spiritual union that you have. Your relationship with the Lord, it's got to start there for the cure, for the remedy, so to speak. We see this by the very design of marriage. It is revealed just in these two verses in the book of Malachi and come in multiple other places in the word of God. Maybe you notice something else. There is this particular goal of marriage that is different than what is taught today, at least by society, and even in the church. What is the goal of marriage? Let me just tell you that it's not for personal happiness, not for society, not for the other person. I've heard well-meaning parents say, well, oh, we love who we, my son's going to marry because it just makes him happy. Well, happiness has nothing to do with the goal for marriage. You hope that you'd be happy, that you'd have joy, but it's not the goal of marriage. Look at the second part of verse 15, and you see what it is. Now, this is not an exhaustive teaching on marriage, but if you were to summarize it, this is the best way to say it. Malachi has it in the second part of verse 15. And what was the one God seeking? What should the goal of marriage be? What should come forth from these spiritual unions we call marriage or a covenant? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Have you thought about it that way? That is the goal of marriage, godly offspring. Now, I know right away someone's gonna, someone might be thinking, well, what about those who don't have children? What about those uh, who are single? It's still the goal of marriages. So those people in those situations are part of a community, and they're to contribute to godly offspring. When we take, when we take uh, our vows at baptism, we don't say those of you with children say it. We say the family of God together, regardless of what your circumstances, you take this vow to raise this child, and it's a serious vow. It has to do with your part in raising godly offspring. You help me with my offspring if God is not, for whatever reason, giving you children of your own. Or if your children are out of your house and you're in church now and your children are all different parts of the country, you still have part to play in raising godly offspring right here where God has placed you. In whatever way you can make that contribution, it leaves out no one. Sure, it's specific and it's right in the face of those of us who have little children or, or teenagers in our homes or what have you, but it's for all of us in the community. Because what does a one God require, want out of marriage? Godly offspring. What a difference. It's not personal happiness. It's not so this person can make me feel good. It's not for physical satisfaction. It's not just for uh, some altruism of just serving someone else. All those things are nice, but the reason is godly offspring. Why? To propagate the church. To propagate godliness. It's his number one way of producing other Christians. Is through covenant families, and then they influence the world. I would submit to you, as I have always submitted, that more people will, uh, are in the kingdom because they were born in homes that train them as such rather than those who come by foreign missions. Foreign missions is part of the commission, but one of the main basic things we forget is that raising godly offspring will be the main way that God brings people to himself through the influence of the children we have and they, how they go forth in witnessing for our father. Godly offspring, the purpose of marriage. Think of all the possible ways we can live this out. But we must note this for time's sake. 
that it's a spiritual issue. If you have problems, if you have relational conflict right now in your marriage, note first, start at this point that is at its basis a spiritual conflict, a spiritual problem. Now, it may be that your spouse is more at fault than you. Really, that's not the point. It's just an acknowledging first that it's spiritual at its basis, and it has to be dealt with at that level first before we can go further. And you can see this in verse 15 and verse 16. What does the prophet say? After mentioning the spiritual nature in the second part of, or in the second part of verse 15, godly offspring, the purpose. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do you see that? Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. A second time now. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. It's a spiritual issue, particularly for men. Understand that families are under attack. They have been under attack for a long time. It's not just recently. It's been since the Garden of Eden that families have been under attack. But men, we have to realize that is the case. And you are the linchpin of families. And so if the evil one, if the flesh or the, or, or the world, so to speak, could attack you, then boy, the dominoes will fall. And they are falling in our land. They're falling in a major way. If you want to know the one problem we have, it's faithlessness among fathers. The abandonment of families by fathers. That's what's going on socially. But at the church level even, we have to shore up here. Families under attack, we have to understand this. Men, we must guard our spirits. It's not just, uh, it's not just something as simple as saying. We have to make disciplined efforts to guard our spirits. And your spirit is attacked in so many ways. Your strengths are your weaknesses here. And think of all the ways in which men are particularly affronted in today's culture in particular. And it does no good to act like it's not a reality. There's no way any healthy male can get on the internet anymore and not be affronted with things that will attack your spirit. You say, well, that's a physical thing. That's a, it's a spiritual thing. And it's the front line that the devil will use to attack your family. Because if he can take you out spiritually, what happens to your wife and children? What happens to other wives and children and the rest of the church or the church universal? You hardly even look at a commercial today without being affronted with the sexually explicit things that are there. But not just that, what about all those, those temptations to get rich? You know, to really build your career, to follow this path, follow that path. Why? So you can get rich. And you think, well, that's providing for my family. But you're absent. You're not there. And it's taking you out of the headship of your home. Yeah, you're pursuing great goals. And someday you're going to send your, your children to college and leave them this great, wonderful portfolio. But they won't know who dad is because you were gone the whole time. Take you out. The whole family can go down too. Isn't that true? Guard yourselves in your spirit. Make sure that your spirit is devoted to what God says it ought to be devoted to. I know it's, to say that in just a few minutes, it's much more profound. It calls for accountability. It calls for honesty. It calls for confronting these issues with each other. And wives, I have to say to you that your husbands are under attack beyond what you can even understand. Men and women are wired differently. And if you... For what you think they're under, they're under attack much more than you even can imagine. So your prayers for them, your support for them, your nurture for them, your constantly upholding them before the throne of grace is invaluable here. In the ways you can understand him, bring those ways before the throne. Understand what he is dealing with and help him because you are his helpmate, the only one specifically designed with such an ability. What we have here is just the result of spiritual problems. These relationship problems came from spiritual problems, and we still face them today. Safeguard 
your marriages. Safeguard your homes. Your commitment is to God. Recognize your potential for sin. Lead spiritually in your home, men. Wives, support your husbands. What we have in this book are just really a litany of problems that develop from this one basic truth. We are sinners saved by grace. That changes, that spiritual dynamic changes everything about how we relate with each other and how we relate with the most important human relationship we have with our spouse. Billy Graham's wife said once, have you ever heard her? She's just a sweet woman. You should hear her testimony to their marriage. It's always encouraging to those of us who are younger in our marriages. And she said that a good marriage is the union of two forgivers. She's right. Because what is at the heart of that? Forgiving each other as we have been forgiven. Don't overlook sin. That's not the point. It's forgiveness for those sins properly pursued by the word of God. Brothers and sisters, at its base, relationship problems are spiritual problems, and we have the tools to deal with them with the word of God and his spirit given a deposit to you. Let us pray.